0: enjoying our service? We're glad that you're here. I know some of you, it took, we had a bunch of people coming late. Who Who got stopped because of the train? Yeah, I see a bunch of people. Yeah, all right. Those trains, they catch us. We're right there. It's rough. You are here for, we're, we're beginning Rough Crowd and that it's a brand new series. We're beginning today. So perfect time to be here. And it's about the life of Joseph. And this is Joseph the patriarch, not the Christmas Joseph. We're not getting ready for Christmas here. This is different Joseph, right? This is the Joseph that the Christmas Joseph, Mary's husband, was named after, the patriarch. And, uh, and he's one of the most intriguing people in all of human history. He was born a favored son, hated by his brothers, sold into slavery. He rose to become the the second most prominent person in the most powerful nation on earth. And he did all that during his 110-year life without ever taking his eyes off of God. Hardships didn't turn him away from God, and prosperity Didn't ruin him. He stood faithful. And that's the story that we're talking about, but I got to tell you, his family was a mess. And when he was a teenager, he had issues. And that's actually where we're going to start. We're actually starting in Genesis chapter 37. And uh, Genesis... If you've never read it, you should read it. It really covers about a third of human history. And it kind of flows this way. God creates the universe and everything in it. And his crowning part of creation is human beings. He creates Adam and Eve, but he creates them different. He creates them in his image. And that means that they are self-aware. We can think We have freedom. We can choose, make choices. But unfortunately, that freedom that God gave us so that we wouldn't be just droids serving him with no choice, that freedom led all of us into sin. That freedom brought sin into the world. That brought a curse onto the world. And people started drifting from God as as people began to multiply on the earth. That became so bad, so messy, so evil That at one point, God cleansed the earth with a flood, only saving eight people to repopulate the earth. But even after that, people kept drifting further from God, and also life became more and more messed up with sin. And then finally, God had a plan that he revealed to us finally, but God had a plan to deal with sin and to punish sin once for all without destroying us. And in order to set that plan in motion, he picked one person, one man named Abraham. And he called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, which would be like in Iraq area, and called Abraham to move to another land, the land of Canaan, which is what we would call modern-day Israel. And so Abraham believed God and he picked up everything and he went to a land he had never heard of, never knew about to serve God. And then God told him, Abram, later his name was changed to Abraham, God told him that he would be the father of many nations. But more than that, that he would be the father of a specific nation through whom God would bless the entire world. God said through Abraham he would bless all of us who would live on earth. And so Abraham went to Canaan, and the first problem, although he's to be the father of many nations, he and his wife couldn't have children. And so that, that went kind of slow. That wasn't a great start. Finally, in their old age, Abraham and Sarah had a son, and his son's name was Isaac. Isaac then continued to live in, in Canaan, although they were sort of nomadic. And then Isaac had twin sons named Esau and Jacob. And here's where the trouble kind of starts. Scripture says, Echah and Jacob were born. I'll get back to that in a moment. But then Jacob becomes the father of 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's kind of what what Genesis is going to cover. Genesis actually ends with the story of Joseph, who we're talking about uh, in in chapter 50. So so that's how that goes. So Jacob is the father of Joseph, and it starts there in Genesis 37.1. Now, Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And I know that, that he, so Jacob lives in the land where his father has sojourned. Sojourn just means that you're in the land kind of temporarily. God promised Abraham the land, but Abraham's there, but he's there kind of at a, as a guest and he's kind of nomadic and he didn't really own any land except for a, a burial plot. When Sarah died, he bought a cave and an area for her to be buried in. But he didn't really owe the land, nor did Isaac. But Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, in the land of Canaan. These are the records and generations of Jacob. And, and now the story shifts right in the middle of that verse to the life of Joseph. And, and basically what we're gonna learn is that God, just like we've been studying about the last four weeks, God works out his plans... His sovereign will, in spite of decisions and even wrong decisions that people make. And here in this story, we're going to find out today that God works out his sovereign plans even in spite of an imperfect family that's riddled with favoritism. And so we'll begin there Joseph's background of an imperfect family and mainly the sin of favoritism that's part of that. So we all have heard the term, right? Dysfunctional family. And some of you are living it, right? I know. Dysfunctional family, kind of an overused term. It's the sense of disintegration produced with family with with a lot of hurt and pain. And so today, our families are in trouble. Uh, We see it all around in our culture. And they're in trouble because we don't do family the way God intended us, who, who created family, how he intended us to do family, and and we don't do it the way God intended because of our culture's disdain for differences and roles. Because of a, also because of a lack of love, and then communication, also selfishness, addictions, uh, child abuse, sexual abuse, affairs, pornography. You know all these things tear at the family, and and for Christians. For most of us in the room who are believers, what, when family breaks down with us, a lot of times it just boils down to us not wanting to follow what God tells us to do in marriage. And so we need to keep re-upping for that. And of course, we all know that there's a dynamic that when families go bad, that gets inherited, passed down through the family. Our kids, a lot of times, will carry forward any dysfunction that might be in our family. So, you know, they learn from us. We're the example. So as we carry that forward, sometimes that can be a bad thing. And unfortunately, they, kids can grow up and, and they'll repeat the good stuff, but they'll also repeat the mistakes of their family, which is what's great about Christianity, because no matter what family background you come from, with Christianity, all of a sudden you have a standard, a new way of doing relationships, marriage, and family that breaks the cycle of problems in the family. It breaks the cycle of dysfunction. How that played out in my life is, you know, sometimes we can see that, but for me, it, it was very obvious that. God gave me a a great dad, but my dad was not a believer. And my mom was a believer. So then I could see how they both kind of approached things differently. And so then as a young man, I gravitated to be more like my dad. But then I also realized that I had another father in heaven who had advice to give me so then, even though I would naturally kind of default to the way my dad would be as a dad, I realized that no, I need to filter that through God's word to see and keep the good stuff and kick out the bad stuff. Does that make sense? I remember for a long time, just as a teenager, kind of thinking, hey, I get how Christianity works in ladies' lives because my mom was a Christian. But I was like, how do you be a man and be a Christian at the same time? I mean, to me, that was like, yeah, how do you do that? I mean, I just, I, I'd never seen that. I couldn't really see it. And what helped me so much is in my home church in Colorado, I actually had uh, some men in my church that showed interest in me as a teenager. And they allowed me to kind of look into their lives and see, oh, this is how you do it. You know, back then we had something called a newspaper. And these guys would like flip through a newspaper and if they saw you because of sports or something like that in the newspaper, then on Sunday it'd be like, hey Kevin, I saw that, you know, and and they would strike up a conversation and just, they just cared. And all of a sudden I started seeing, oh, this is how you be a Christian and a man at the same time. Well, we all need that. We all need that. So as Christians, we can break these family cycles by doing it God's way. And and what we learn is that God can use anyone, anyone for his purposes, no matter what you've come from, no matter where you've been, no matter who you are. And so we use this term, rough crowd. Why why do we call this series rough crowd? Because it seems like in every phase of Joseph's life, he's in the middle of a rough crowd, people who don't want his best interests. And it starts even in his family. Rough crowd. And I don't know about your family. But just as I look at you, it looked like it could have been rough. No, I'm just kidding. No. no, I don't know about your family. But Joseph's family was rough. He had some issues. All right. Think about it. Look at the background of his family. Joseph's grandfather was Isaac. Isaac had twin sons, and he played favorites. He loved one of the sons, Esau, not Jacob, Joseph's dad, but Rebekah, his wife, loved Jacob. And that, got, that played out in such a bizarre way that Esau held the birthright as the firstborn twin, but then Jacob and his mom Rebekah conspired against Isaac to get Esau's birthright to Jacob. I mean, how messed up is that, right? Well, when that all blew up, Jacob has to run for his life because his twin brother Esau vows to murder him. And so he takes off. He he goes about 200 miles away on foot and he goes to his mom's family. And there he connects with his uncle named Laban. And so he lives with him. But what happened is then Jacob fell in love with Laban's younger daughter, Rachel, and wanted to marry her and talk to Laban about it, but he had nothing. He had no dowry. So Laban said, well, you work for me for seven years and I'll give you your wife, Rachel. And so he says, I'm in. Seven years is nothing. And he starts working. And, and, but he but Laban cheats him. What happens is at the end of the seven years, they have a big wedding. And I'm in the dark of the wedding night, after they've been celebrating all day, Uncle Laban actually sneaks in his older daughter Leah into their tent. And Jacob, unrealized, not realizing that, consummates a marriage with Leah, not not Rachel. And then when he finds out, he's deceived. And so he confronts Laban about it, and Laban's like, well, hey, you know, in our area, usually the older daughter gets married first. And Jacob's going, what? Just work another seven years, and I'll give you Rachel. And Jacob does it. So now all of a sudden, Jacob's got two wives. That's polygamy, right? Right? This is not a good idea, right? Believe me, not a good idea. I I mentioned that before, you know, somebody says, well, polygamy, the Bible supports polygamy. No, the Bible says one man for one woman. But there was all these people with multiple wives. Right, and it was always a disaster, right? So Jacob's married to two, somebody's right there with me, thank you, yeah. Some (laughs) child that's heard all this. right. So Jacob's married to two of his cousins who happen to be competitive sisters, and then all of a sudden they get into a fertility contest. And so Leah, the one that Jacob wasn't really connected to as much, starts having sons, but Rachel doesn't. And so that causes a problem. Eventually, both of his wives, cousins who are competitive sisters, Sway Jacob to sleep with two other women to produce more heirs. So now Jacob's sleeping with four women. It's like he's got two wives and two concubines, or in our day, we would just say he's got four wives. Who's thinking this is working out well? It's not working out well. Finally, Rachel has a son, and that son is Joseph, the 11th son. Of Jacob. And so then it just all kind of spirals from there. Think about this. Later, Jacob moves his family, his 11 sons and a daughter to Canaan. Ben, Benjamin hasn't been born yet. And then after they get to Canaan, so he goes back home basically. After he gets there, 11, he's moving with 11 sons and he has one daughter. Once he gets there, They're by a a village, a town. The daughter goes to visit the town, the ladies in the town. And the mayor's son of the town likes the daughter and ends up raping her. Jacob is a passive father. He doesn't really do anything. That Because of that, two of Joseph's brothers, two of Jacob's sons, figure out a way to kill all the men in the city. They murder every man in this town because one of them raped their sister. Not only that, Joseph's oldest brother, Reuben, ends up sleeping with one of his dad's wives, ends up sleeping with the mother of two of his half-brothers. I mean, it's just messed up. All this is happening And again, Jacob is not doing anything about this. He's just passive. And I got to tell you, God has called us not to be passive parents. We need to be engaged in what's happening with our kids. We need to lead our families. Don't let somebody else, the government, school, whoever, don't let others teach your kids about God or sexuality or gender or family. That's our job. You keep that. Don't let that happen. So Joseph's mom then dies giving birth to his younger son, Benjamin, to make the 12th son. And so Joseph doesn't have a a mom. So I don't know how your family is, but here's Joseph. He grows up with three stepmoms, 11 brothers and a sister. One brother slept with his older brother with his other brother's mom, two brothers murdered the men of an entire town because one of them raped their sister and all 10 of his older brothers hated him. Maybe you're thinking, my family wasn't so bad after all. (laughs) Because that's Joseph. Or some of you, not so funny, may be thinking, yeah, I get it. I don't have to step out of my front door to experience a rough crowd. Is right at home. An imperfect family can affect your life adversely. And so because of this, we see the baggage of favoritism that shows up in Joseph's life. We'll pick it up there in the middle of verse 2. It says, Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel, who by the way is also Jacob, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Then Joseph had a dream. And I'm gonna stop right there before we continue because Joseph had a dream because I know if I don't do this, I'm gonna have 10 people over there in room one after church telling me that they had a dream and because they had a dream, what does that mean and what should I could do? Hey, not all dreams are from God, Okay. Can we all say that? Not all dreams are from God, right? Some dreams are just out of our crazy, probably almost all of our dreams are just out of our crazy imagination. So what if you think your dream is from God and that that dream's leading you to some decision in your life? Well, just go back to what we were talking about two weeks ago. Well, how does that square? Remember the grid? You go to God's word first. Does it square with God's word? And then after that, if it's not addressed, and if if it's in God's word, case closed. Do what God says. If it's not clearly in God's word, then we remember biblical principles and how that may play. Because some things, even though it's not addressed specifically, we get the biblical principles that do play a part. Follow that. We get the whole thing. You do that. You don't just blindly follow a dream that you think is from God. Why? Because... Dreams are just you, usually. So be careful. Anyway, continue. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, please listen to this dream which I've had. For behold, we were all building sheaves, binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and stood erect, and behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Isn't this a great dream? <laughs> brothers didn't think so. They all have stalks of grain. His stands up straight, and all, everybody else's, all his other brothers, stalks of grain, bow to his, you know. And then his brothers said to him, are you actually going to reign?" over us? Are you really going to rule over us? They know what this means. So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So they already hated him. He has a dream. They hate him more. But now he had still another dream, verse 9, and related it to his brothers and says... Check this out. Lo, I've had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. And he related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said, what's this dream that you've had? Shall I and your mother, probably meaning Leah, and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in his mind. So we watch Jacob's partiality toward Joseph play out in his life for 17 years, and all of a sudden that creates all kinds of baggage in Joseph's life. I mean, he, he was wearing this coat, so his dad gives him a coat. He didn't really control that. But when he wears it all the time, check it out, number one son. That's me. Uh-huh. You know, didn't have to do that. His brothers hate him. He has a dream that's obviously saying that he's going to be r- ruling over his brothers. The dream didn't say, tell this to your brothers, right? No, he won't, but he wanted to share. Why? Because he loved the dream. It's a great dream for Joseph, And so he shares the dream. Maybe he's 17. Maybe he's naive. But they hate him even more after that dream. Well, then he has a second dream. So surely you'd think this time, maybe he would keep this dream to himself. Oh, no. No, he shares that dream too. And what happens? They hate him even more. And even his dad rebukes him. Hey, you've crossed the line, son. You need to... Ratchet it back a little bit. What, even we're all gonna be bowing down to you? So he, he gets this coat, you know, and, and it's weird because he gets this coat and you'd think that Jacob would have learned from his own experiences because he was not the favored child of his dad. Esau was. But no, he, he gives him the coat. He didn't hide his bias he gives it in a very visible and demonstrative way with this tunic. And it's interesting as you look at the words for this tunic, because it it means that that it's colorful, but it also extends to the hands and to the feet. It's a long robe with long sleeves, which is very unusual. And to go back to try to figure out the color, you ever wonder what Joseph's coat might have looked at? Well, there's this is all happening about 18th century B.C. Well, we actually have some pictures in a tomb, paintings in a tomb, and also a fresco in Syria that kind of show this. Here, here's the fresco in Syria, again, about the time of Joseph. And we see all these multicolored panels in this garment. Notice her short sleeve. And then here, this is depicting some Hebrews in Egypt in an 18th century B.C. tomb So with the stripes. And so you have all this. But what was super unusual was not the color, it was the length, because this word scholars have realized has come to mean, this means to the palms and to the feet. And so a long-sleeved robe, very unusual. Nobody in those pictures had that. And what it was was a sign of nobility and a sign of wealth. And the point was, Joseph's brothers didn't have long-sleeved garments or down to the ground garments, because they did the physical manual labor of a shepherd. But Joseph, it's like he's wearing a tuxedo to the farm. And so he's standing there, and his brothers are doing all the work, and he's just standing there. You know, guys are doing pretty good, doing all right. He's not dressed for labor. He's not dressed for work. He is in charge. He has been designated the favored one. Actually, some scholars have studied this, and there was a, a Mid, Middle Eastern custom around this time, and we don't know if this has played into this story or not for sure. But the custom was this remember the inheritance, the main part of the inheritance, so everything wouldn't just be divided up and kind of just melt away. It always went to the oldest child, and everybody else kind of fended for themselves. Well, it would be the oldest child of the first wife, and who was the first wife, by the way, of Jacob? Leah, the one he consummated the marriage without even realizing it, right? She's number one. Well, her son is Reuben, so he's the heir. But Reuben is the guy that did what? Slept with his stepmom, slept with his half-brother's mother, slept with Abraham's third or fourth wife, You know, or concubine. Not a good incest. So it could be because Reuben did that, that he lost the birthright. But this Middle Eastern cultural uh, rule that they found was that if the first oldest son of the first wife lost their birthright, then it didn't go to the second oldest son to the first wife. It actually went to the oldest son of the second wife. And who was that? That would be Rachel, and then her son, Joseph, although he was the 11th oldest of the 12 brothers, it could be that he has the actual birthright, and that's what all this, the coat and everything is symbolizing. But either way, it doesn't matter. What we do know is his brothers hated him, hated him for what he's done. It's just, just a mess. He tells him about his dreams. He tells one that doesn't go so well, so he tells him the other one, which goes even worse. And so Joseph's family was dysfunctional and primarily because of this favoritism. And and why is that a problem? Because God says it's a problem. There's a problem with favoritism. I actually read in in preparation this week, um, just recently, that uh, the number one reason for failure in a second marriage is parenting issues. Because things get a little off, you know, it gets a little more challenging. And so whether first or second marriage, we all get, right, that kids are different. And it's like impossible to treat them exactly the same because they're different. But what we can do is we can love them all equally and we can treat them all fairly. And that's what God calls us to do. And not only that, God's telling us to do that within our family, but God's telling us to do that with everybody everyone. How many of you were the favorite child? Admit it. Come on. My brothers aren't watching, so I'm pretty sure I was, you know, but why wouldn't I be? I mean, you know, whatever. But how many, how many of you like, no, I know the favorite and it wasn't me. Anybody like, yeah, okay. So here's the tip for us parents. Hey, when you, when you really like one more than the other, keep it quiet you have to share that with everybody. No. No, God's telling us we are not biased. We don't show favoritism. We live it out. So we need to be careful with that. Here's what, here's what God says. He doesn't want us to practice favoritism. That was back from the Old Testament, Leviticus 19:15 says, "You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor." Like if you're on the jury, you don't you don't you're not partial to the poor nor do you defer to the great. You're impartial. You are to judge your neighbor fairly. And then in the New Testament, we have the same theme. Shows up in James 2, for example, where people within the church weren't treated fairly. And James says it this way. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Now, well, what's favoritism? What is that? Well, favoritism, the word here actually means receiving of faith, face, face, receiving of face, literally. It's kind of like you judge them just by looking at them, whether it's race or wealth or whatever it is, rank, you sort of see the external factors and you judge them and you prefer them because of that without going any further. It's a bias that gives preference to one person over others with equal claims. Favoritism. Now I know some of you are going, yeah, I experienced favoritism. You know what happened? I had been at my job for 10 years and I worked pretty hard. But then a promotion came up, and this other guy I work with, he got it, and he had only worked eight years, and I know he got it just because he does everything the boss says. That's not favoritism, right? That's he got the promotion because he did everything the boss says. Are you with me on this? That is not favoritism. That's the boss going, this guy's a better worker than that guy. Favoritism is when there are equal claims, but for external reasons, you just pick one over the other. That's wrong. And it's always wrong. It's wrong in the church. It's wrong outside the church. Always wrong. Even the disciples struggled with this issue of kind of a bias against non-Jewish people. For example, in Acts 10, 34, it says, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Peter's like, oh, I get it now. Whoever responds to God, God loves. You don't have to be Jewish. God loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. Please don't leave not understanding this. We've all have issues. We've all sinned against God. We've all done our own thing. It's a curse on the world. Sin is rampant. It's because our hearts choose to do our way rather than God's way. We've all done that. And it's wrong. And God is morally just and says, wrong has to be punished. But it's through Abraham, and he starts this plan that there will be a way to deal with sin and punish sin without destroying everyone. And that being true to God's justice. And that's what's set in motion. And if you're here today, God loves you. And I always say it this way, because it's not just God loves you, I think that's a little too light. God knows you first. God knows you. God knows who you are. God knows everything about you. God knows things about you that you've long forgotten. God knows everything about you. And the amazing thing, just like with me, he loves us anyway. God loves us in spite of our sin. And he invites us, everyone, without partiality, God invites us into relationship with him. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, that's something because I'm not religious and I'm not moral and I've done a lot of things and I don't think God's extending this offer to me. And it's like, oh, you're messed up. Good. Because you have to understand that before you can even respond to God. Because we're all messed up. None of us deserve his love. Romans 2.11 says, for there is no partiality with God. God. There is no partiality with God. So then when we read a verse like John three sixteen, it runs deeper in our lives. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life or everlasting life. That's God's offer to all of us. And if you want to get your life right, if you want to look at this beginning of the story of Joseph's life, it's God's inviting all of us and God's inviting all of us to be a part of what he's doing in the world to bring about his redemptive plan for the world. And it doesn't matter where you came from. And it doesn't matter what your family was like. And through a relationship with God, we can hang on to the great things about our family and we can move on from the bad things in our family, the things aren't, that aren't right. That's what God calls us to. We don't have to default to the negative. We can change our family's trajectory. We can change our family's trajectory history by doing life God's way we can rise above the negative influences the baggage that we carry in our life and that'll be good for everybody around us and most of all it'll be good for the people that we love the most so no matter who you are no matter what you've done God wants to use you for his purposes No matter what's happened before, it doesn't matter. God wants to use you. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for loving us because none of us deserve it. Father, we thank you for Joseph's story in the Bible that that he starts out kind of rough and then just goes from problem to problem to problem, it seems like, always surrounded by people who don't want his best interests, but yet you use him. And Father, we want to be like him and that we don't want when we, that when we go through adversity, it hardens our heart against you. Help us to be like Joseph. And we don't want it that when we go through prosperity and success, that it ruins us for you because we think we don't need you. Help us to be like Joseph. And Father, help us to realize that in you, you are taking away all of our sins. You are washing them away. You are releasing us from the chains that hold us back. Whatever stuff that's ever happened in our life, it doesn't matter anymore. We can move on from that in your love and your grace. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray.